I hear God's holy word from the 10th commandment as we reach the 10th of the 10 commandments that we've been studying these past several weeks. Hear God's holy word. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we need your spirit today to help us understand and receive and apply your word. So fill us all with your spirit that we might hear the words of your spirit, the inspired word of the text of scripture. Fill me with your spirit that I might articulate these things clearly. Deliver us all from error. Deliver us from anything that's not useful. Deliver us from all distraction so that we may hear and receive your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody is rich and nobody is happy, at least in the United States. Everybody is rich and nobody is happy. You may say, hold on there, just wait a minute. I'm not rich. I have bills. Some months it gets pretty tight. I have broken stuff that needs fixing around the house. I sure don't feel rich. And sure, compared to Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, we're not rich when compared to them. We're not rolling in money. Nobody here sleeps on big bags of $100 bills that I know of. If you do, you know, get, send me a picture. Let me know what that's like. <laughs> But when you compare yourself to the rest of the world or when you compare yourself to the lives of everyone for the first 5,900 years of human history, you see suddenly we are unbelievably astronomically wealthy and comfortable. If your family makes more than $30,000 a year, you are in the top 1.5% of wage earners in the world today. If your family uh, brings home $50,000, that puts you in the top 1% of the world today. The change in your cup holder in your car and the pennies in your jar at home is more than the total wealth of 50% of the world's population today. One billion people in the world live on less than $1.25 a day. That's, that wouldn't get you a cup of coffee at McDonald's. Not only are we wealthy when compared to the rest of the world, but we're also wealthy when compared to the rest of history. Imagine how your ancestors lived more than 200 years ago. Maybe some of them lived in fine houses, surely, but none of them had running water. None of them had indoor plumbing. None of them had electricity. None of them had cars. Imagine the incredible wealth of transportation that we have. And think of not only financial wealth, but the wealth of the ability to move about freely and to get into cars and go wherever we want to go, not to mention planes. None of our ancestors had cars. None of them had phones or computers. You have more computing power in your pocket right now and access to more information than anyone has ever had in the history of the world. Unbelievable access. If you want any book in the world, I bet you I can find it. I can find you any book in the world. Give me just a few sentence, uh, seconds and, and we can start reading it right now right now. I can, uh, I can find it for you. You want any piece of music that's ever been recorded, give me 30 seconds. Any movie that has ever been filmed, and I can find it for you. King Solomon didn't have one of those things that you have in your pocket. 
And so technologically, you're far more wealthy than King Solomon. I mean, Solomon didn't even have a used Toyota. Imagine he could have, uh, what he could have done with a used Corolla. Uh, imagine if he had that. So financially and technologically, we are unbelievably wealthy. We are rich and still nobody is happy. We are anxious and worried and nervous. And in the face of such blessing that the world has never seen, we have a very difficult time being content. A couple of weeks ago when we looked at the Eighth Commandment, I pointed out that very often God blesses his faithful children with good things. We looked at Abraham. We considered Solomon for just a moment. And we ought to enjoy the good things that we have been given. Don't feel guilty that God has given you blessings, but rather be content and thankful for what you have. Now, continuing down that path, contentedness and gratitude are what is required by the 10th commandment, which tells us you must not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his servants, his animals, or anything that belongs to him. Covetousness gazes longingly at what someone else has. It compares what someone else has to what you have, and it sparks a flame of dissatisfaction in your soul. It's ingratitude which burns with illicit desire to possess something that's not yours. Covetousness is also attempting to gain by fraud or by force or coercion or deceit to obtain something that belongs to your neighbor. So the verb covet means not only to want something, it does, but it also means to connive, to take it, to want to have it. So it's not just the emotion of desire, but also takes into account the, the taking, the gaining, or the attaching yourself to something illegally. When Jesus refers to the 10th commandment in Mark's gospel, in, in uh, Mark 10, 19, Jesus lists the commandments similar to the way Paul did in our uh, epistle reading this morning. When Jesus refers to the 10th commandment, this is how he quotes it. Jesus quotes the 10th commandment, do not defraud. So, so the emphasis, even when Jesus repeats it, is on the action of crossing a boundary and taking something that's not yours. Now, we are apt to confuse jealousy and covetousness and envy. Uh, you might say, what's the 10th commandment? Well, the 10th commandment says, don't be jealous. But that's not what it says. It says, don't covet. Those are two different words. In fact, envy has a different uh, coloring and a different flavor to it. So, so what's the difference between these? Well, jealousy, jealousy is not a sin. Jealousy is, in fact, a virtue. Back in the second commandment, what do we read? Uh, I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Well, if God is jealous then jealousy is a virtue. God doesn't sin. God, can't, God can't sin. But so back in the second commandment, God said, don't make any carved images and bow down to them for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. His jealousy is an intense love for what is his. And it, it demonstrates his desire to protect it. God is jealous of the things that belong to him, which include our worship and our affection. Those belong to him. He is especially jealous of his bride. If someone starts to pay a whole lot of attention to your spouse, it will probably upset you. If your spouse begins to show attention to someone else, it would be understandable if you have a big problem with that. It should make you angry. So out of jealousy, you would say, no, what's mine is mine. That's what jealousy says. What's, what's mine is mine, and if God has given me something, I should want to protect it. 
God is a jealous God because God is holy. His integrity demands that he protects what's his. Jealousy guards your space. Jealousy is guarding. And you can't guard your wife or your children to fiercely. Man's duty before God is to defend the woman and her offspring. They must be guarded. And jealousy is, is the desire to guard what's yours. So jealousy is not a sin. But covetousness, which the 10th commandment forbids, is of course a sin. Covetousness is to want what your neighbor has that's off limits to you, and that, that desire to have it or possess it or control it drives you into ingratitude, and you begin to scheme to get what is not yours. And let me qualify that for just a minute. If you have something that that I like, say you've got uh, a nice vintage car or you've got a piece of stereo equipment and I say, man, I sure like to have that. I, I want one of those. And you say, well, you can have it, make me an offer. And I make you an offer. And I say, I'll, well, I'll give you this much money for it. And you say, I'll take it. That's not, that's not covetousness. It's not covetousness to, to work out a deal, to offer to buy something from somebody. That's a, that's a fair way of obtaining something that you want. It's not a sin to want a possession you, have, you, you don't have to admire it and to make an offer. Uh, your spouse is in a different category, of course. We can't make a deal for wives. I can't say, you know, I'll give you so much money. In fact, and this is an important point, I know it's kind of silly to say that, but uh, in Deuteronomy, when Moses repeats this commandment, he deliberately sets the wife out from the house, and we're going to look at that before we're closed, uh, before we're done today. But, but here's the deal. If I want something that's off limits to me that I can't have, and yet I pine for it so that it causes a lot of ingratitude and anger toward God that I don't have it, whatever it is, then it becomes a sin. And if it calls me, causes me to do things to undermine you and, and to, to try to get that thing in illicit ways, that is prohibited. And I may never get it. I may never have it. But that stewing and that pining and that lusting after something forbidden is sin. Now, there's another word we use, envy. So jealousy is a virtue. Covetousness is a sin. Envy also is a sin. And this is something else that Moses breaks out when he repeats the commandment in Deuteronomy. He breaks out envy from covetousness. Envy is hating someone for having what you don't have. You don't really want it for yourself. You just want to tear it up. Someone has things, you don't want them to have it, so you spray paint it or throw a brick through the window. Uh, envy is the foundation of socialism. People want to spoil the rich, not because they want what the rich have, they just don't want them to have it. Uh, jealousy is a virtue, envy is a sin, covetousness is a sin, covetousness and, and envy are both covered under the 10th word. So the law lists out here, when we read, we read the law, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, and then he breaks out his wife, his servants, his, his ox, his donkey, his animals, and everything that's part of his house. The law lists things that are off limits to us, things that belong to our neighbors, and in this commandment, there is recognition that God has established boundaries in the world. We saw this back when we studied the commandment against stealing, that God has built into his law property rights. You have things that belong to you and they are yours and you can control them. There is such a thing as personal property. 
And here that's reinforced. There are things that belong to you that do not belong to me. And you have the God-given right to enjoy your house and everything in it without guilt. (laughs) You, You enjoy what God has given you without guilt. And you may choose to share it with me, but unless you do that, it's off limits to me. The 10th commandment establishes a man's free use of his own property without interference. And the 10th commandment is all about boundaries and the protection of those boundaries. When you think 10th commandment, think boundaries, think jurisdiction, think protection of boundaries. So the 10th commandment shows us that God has established perimeters around personal property and God has established bounds of jurisdiction in the world and the integrity of those boundaries is to be respected and communally maintained. I must respect your boundaries and you must respect mine. I am to recognize the the bounds of your property and I'm not to cross those and not remove the landmark, as Proverbs 22 says. Don't remove the landmark. The landmark, of course, mark the boundaries of your inheritance, the boundaries of your profit. Don't go moving those. I must not put my hand to what is yours or seek to defraud you or what belongs to you, and you must do the same for me. My physical property has a boundary. What's mine is mine. My house is mine. Everything that is in it is mine, from the washing machine to the toaster oven to the puppy dog, every, the gerbil, it's all mine. Everything in there, everything under my roof and on my property is mine. And no one can cross that boundary uninvited apart from some extreme circumstance where some higher biblical principle is in place. Say someone's life is legitimately in danger um, and, and there's some higher principle to to, to maintain there. Only then can that property be uh, uh, crossed, that, that boundary be crossed. So again, so I want to state it clearly. What's mine is mine. And in a just and biblical society, any outside jurisdiction over my property is limited and it's principled. So, so there's not unbounded uh, jurisdiction over a man's life and property. Every other governing authority has limits to its jurisdiction over a man's property, over a family's property. In addition to that, this is important to point out, my body has a boundary. Your body has a boundary. Listen to how Paul speaks about this in 1 Thessalonians. Listen closely, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. What Paul says is you have possession over your own vessel, over your own body. And he says you have a duty to guard the boundaries of that vessel Primarily, first, in this context, guard it against sexual immorality. But transgressing the physical boundary of your brother's body is called defrauding your brother. Now, defrauding, where have we heard that? That's the same word Jesus used when he quoted the 10th commandment in Mark's gospel. So uh, coveting someone's body or someone's spouse's body 
uh, is defrauding them. It's breaking the 10th commandment. It's abusing them or, or taking them or seducing them. It's all forbidden, not only under the 7th commandment, not only under don't commit adultery, but also the 10th commandment because what's the 10th commandment about? It's about violating boundaries. And so this is also covered under the 10th commandment. Paul is speaking to the issue of fornication here specifically, but I, I, I'm comfortable in extending that in this possessing our own vessel, that, that phrase that he uses, we can extend that out to say, God has given you the responsibility for maintaining the integrity of your own body. You have not only the right, but the duty to protect your own body. And if you are a woman with child, protect the boundary of your body so that your little one is kept safe and no harm comes to the child. You see, in a, in a just and biblical society, once again, I get to, to, to determine what goes on my body and what goes in my body, and no one has a right to cross that boundary, either by edict or mandate or law. No one has a right to do that. And if you do, the Bible calls that fraud. The Bible calls that covetousness. That's the breaking of the 10th commandment. You must not break the 10th commandment to trespass on your neighbor's body. Now, this, the same Paul who wrote this, he also wrote, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore, I, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. No human authority is ever ultimate or absolute. All human authority is under God's authority. So we're only free to use our bodies and we're only free to use our property in subjection to the law of God. We don't have total freedom. We don't have absolute freedom with regards to the things we're given. However, what's, what's under attack most often today and, and what's at question is the matter of whether we have the right to possess anything at all, whether our life has any boundaries, whether my property has any boundaries, whether my body has any boundaries that must not be transgressed, or whether the other side of that argument, or whether the lives and livelihoods of people are the property of the government, or maybe the lives and livelihoods of the people are, are the property of the mob, whatever the mob wants and the mob gets, whether it's my property or my body. Let me give you a couple examples that are well, you're, you're, you're well familiar with. For months now, we've heard the slogan that lives matter more than the economy. And that kind of sounds right if you're the person who doesn't think too much. I mean, if you don't, if you don't think too critically about things, you say, well, of course lives matter more than the economy. If you think the economy is Wall Street, or you think, you think maybe the economy, you, you think of the man on the Monopoly box, you know, uh, lighting uh, cigars with $100 bills. If you think, okay, that's the economy. Does my life matter more than that? Well, yeah. If that's what you think, then, then you'll be easily taken in by this. But what is the economy? We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. What is the economy? It's two Greek words, oikos, nomos, house, law. Oikos is house, nomos is law. What is the economy? The economy is the law of the house. The economy is the management of life and all the things that make life livable and worth living. Worship, work, food, drink, education, medicine, art, music. Cut these things off and you cut off life. 
The economy is life. The economy is not stocks. The economy is not Wall Street. The economy is the business of living. And apart from people worshiping God and working and developing and innovating and growing food and making food and serving food and sharing ideas and products, apart from all of that, we go naked and we starve and we thirst and we die. There is no life apart from economy. There's no life apart from the ordered lawful rule of the house, the oikos nomos. There's no life from, apart from that. And, and it's the house and everything in it that's identified in the 10th commandment as the extension of man's life. You violate the stuff, you violate the man. You attack his livelihood, you've attacked his life. So to separate life from economy and say we value lives more than the economy, to separate those two things is to separate two things that God has put together. God has put life and house together, life and livelihood. Life, life is more than just your heart beating. Life is more than just air going in and out of your lungs. I mean, if, you, if that's your definition of life, you know, you need to put a bag over your head and wrap yourself in bubble wrap and crawl under your bed for about three months and just see how nice that is. Is that life? I mean, that's, is that where we're at? Life is everything that makes life beautiful and lovely. Life is livelihood. Now, that's one thing. We just cut, cut the feet right out from under that. Um, there's, that's, and that's what the 10th commandment addresses, that very bad attitude. And a few months after we got life is more important than the economy, we got another phrase that was circulated. It's an even more insane motto, if that was possible. Justice is more important than property. If we heard that. Our governor said something very similar to that. The cause of justice is more important than property. So if a mob of feral rioters come down your street and burn down your business that it took you 20 years to build, it's okay. It really, it's okay. Wipe your tears. Your newfound awareness to the cause of jo social justice will make up for the loss. Your awakening to, uh, to, to our cause is gonna make up for what you've, what you've lost. These are, these are mental toddlers. These are children who've, who've never built anything themselves. They've never produced anything. They don't understand the first thing about the sacrifices and risks you have to take to build and grow a business. Torching a business helps who exactly? How does that help? What points are scored for social justice? What, what, what happens there? There can be no justice if there is no obedience to God's law. And God's law upholds the integrity of bodies and houses and properties. The 10th commandment forbids us to envy or vandalize or to destroy our neighbor's property or to steal his enjoyment of them or to rob him of his livelihood. All of this is forbidden under the 10th commandment. So we're called to recognize boundaries and to keep our hands to ourselves and, and keep our hands to ourselves not only personally but communally. I'm not going to vote for people who want to rob you of the pleasure of your stuff, of the things God has given you. I'm gonna do this communally. I'm not gonna support things that, that lead to the robbing of a man's livelihood and his life. Respect your neighbor's house and realize that all the things in it are an extension of his life. This matter of boundaries goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Who's the first boundary breaker? Who's the first, who's the first trespasser of boundaries? Well, 
God put Adam in the garden to dress it and to keep it. Dress means to adorn, beautify, glorify. Keep means to guard. And so God put Adam in the garden to guard the garden. Guarding implies that there are boundaries. There are limits that cannot be transgressed. Dress and keep the garden. That was Adam's duty. And yet we know that someone invaded it. Satan started off at the, as the great transgressor of boundaries. He was the great trespasser. And his whole agenda, Satan's whole mission ever since has been to break down walls, to invade and corrupt, to test all limits, to attack all the borders and to find a soft spot. Now, the focus of Adam's dressing and keeping, uh, the, the primary object of his dressing and keeping was the woman that God put in the garden. She was the most precious inhabitant of the garden. And so Adam's duty toward her was to teach her, to guard her, and to feed her. He was to teach her the command of God. He was to protect her from any outside invasion. That's what it means to guard, keep, he's protect her, and to feed her from every tree but one. Okay, well, he failed at this, obviously, famously. We know the story. He failed at this. And this, by the way, is precisely what the second Adam fulfills for his bride. The Lord Jesus teaches his bride. He's the word. He guards her and keeps her pure. He has a sword. Look at Revelation. Jesus carries a sword. And, and he feeds her at his table. And he feeds her with all kinds of spiritual nourishment. And also, adding to that as his servant and his representative, that's also my duty in God's garden toward God's bride. I get to serve Christ's bride by teaching her, by guarding her from error, by uh, practice, we, we practice church discipline. That's also a guarding uh, aspect of our duty. And, and I get to feed her. So, so think in these terms of teaching and guarding and feeding. But back to Adam. He allows the barriers to be broken down, the walls crumble, and the garden is overrun by an invader. When Adam doesn't teach her well enough and he doesn't feed her, Satan does. Satan comes in as a teacher and a feeder and he wins. He enters the garden and of course, in doing this, Adam fails to guard his bride. Satan attacks the bride because if he, he knows if he can get to the woman, he can get the whole garden, he can get everything. And that way he can control the future. The supreme coveter is Satan. He's the one who wants to take God's house, his wife, his possessions. He wants to invade God's garden and spoil it. So this work of coveting and invading and corrupting another man's house is satanic. We are made in the image of God. And so we also have a wife, a garden, a house that we're supposed to guard and not invade another man's boundaries. The 10th commandment commands us to stay out of our neighbor's garden. Don't be a Satan. Stay away from his house and his wife and his whole life. Don't be a serpent. It is serpents who invade and control and covet and corrupt. It's serpents who do this. Now, I said I was going to get over to Deuteronomy. I just got a couple of minutes left, but I want to, I want to show you where uh, Moses repeats this commandment over in Deuteronomy. When he does this, uh, he sets the wife out as preeminent. So, so back in Exodus, he said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And under the heading of house, he lists wife, servants, animals, anything else. But when the commandment is repeated over in Deuteronomy, listen to this, Deuteronomy 5.21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife 
and you shall not desire envy your neighbor's house, his servants, his field, his ox, his donkey, anything that is, is your neighbor's. The wife in the second time that the law is given in Deuteronomy, the wife is set out above and over the house. Uh, there's been some development and maturity from Exodus to Deuteronomy, and, and, and this is God's pattern. He often does things in two stages, and in, and in the second stage, there's, a, there's an elevation and a glorification of the bride. We've looked at that pattern in the past, and we'll, we'll, dive, we'll do a deep dive into that sometime in the future as well. But, but God tends to do things in two stages, and when he does, the bride is elevated, and it's important to see now where she is. She's been elevated over the house. She's not part of the house. The man is the covenantal head of his wife, but the two of them are over the house. And you see this in various places. Sons are to obey and to listen to the voice of their mother and their father. Sons are corrected. Listen to your mother. The Proverbs 31 woman watches over the ways of her household. She is over the house, and the house is hers and her husband's to rule over together. 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul exhorts the younger women to marry, to bear children, and to rule the house. And I love the word that he uses there. He, he uses the word despot. Be a despot over your house. Be a ruler over your house. And that command is to women. That, is, that command is to the wife who marries, bears children, and rules over her house with her husband as her head. And this he says, this Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 5, says, this gives no opportunity to the adversary. Husband guards wife and house. She with him guards house and garden together. And they too rule over the property, the little kingdom that he's given them. Um, so, so many of these things in the 10th commandment go away in time. When you read the 10th commandment, you say, okay, I've got a wife, I've got a house, but servants, I don't have those. I don't have an ox. I don't have a donkey. Those things go away. Do you have a donkey? I don't have one. I don't have any oxen. But the wife remains a permanent aspect of man's responsibility. He has a duty to teach her and to guard her and to feed her. And she has the duty to rule beside him over the house in order to protect it and to do this in contentment and to do this guarding against covetousness. So you and I, we keep our own house in gratitude and contentment. If we ignore this commandment, if we ignore the 10th commandment, Everyone becomes a Satan to his neighbor. We invade, we trample, we steal, we take, we vandalize. But if you're busy garden, guarding your own garden, you won't be a serpent in someone else's garden. Now, you, you may think that you have all this down and you don't need to hear this. And, you know, yeah, got the 10th commandment. That's, that's one I've got licked. I'm, I'm pretty okay. I'm pretty happy. I'm, I'm not coveting. I'm pretty grateful for what I've got. But you need to be aware because there comes a time in the lives of men and women, and it, and it manifests itself differently for both men and women, but there comes a time in life where we are exceptionally prone to the sin of covetousness. At a certain age, we, we realize, wow, okay, this is it. This is who I am. This, whatever this is, is pretty much what I'm going to be. And it suddenly sinks in. Maybe I'm not going to be the CEO of IBM. Maybe I'm not going to be the president of the United States or even the vice president. I'm not going to be an accomplished musician or athlete. I'm not going to be famous or fabulously wealthy. All those ships have sailed. And now I am what I am. What you see is what you get. This is who I am. 
Sure, I wanna grow and succeed and be productive, but there are a great number of things that maybe I had planned or things that I had dreamed or possibilities that I hoped for that just aren't gonna happen. It's just not gonna happen. And, and at the same time that these realizations come true, I don't know if it's um, a causation or correlation, but for us, both men and women, there are biological changes that happen along with this where our view of ourselves are changing at the same time that we're starting to realize, okay, this is who we are and this is how things are going. And as you feel yourself transitioning into that phase of life, some of you are there, some of you have passed through it and done a really good job with it. Some of you are right on the front end of it. For some of you, it's a long way off. But, but as you feel yourself slipping into this phase of life and moving into this phase of life, and as the regrets and the what ifs start to creep in, it is imperative that we train ourselves in gratitude for the immense wealth that God has given us, not just for the material wealth, absolutely, but also the technological wealth and for the people, the family, the friends, the extreme comfort and ease of your life, which is so unbelievably rare in the world and so unbelievably rare in history. And, and if you don't cultivate gratitude, if you don't keep this perspective of gratitude, you will turn into a coveter and that will get super ugly, super fast. You begin to indulge covetous attitudes of thinking and living and you feed in gratitude and dissatisfaction. And one day you will wake up and you will be angry at everybody all the time for no reason. Nothing will satisfy you. Nothing will make you happy. You will be a fountain of discontent when you open your mouth in gratitude and covetousness and envy will pour out of your mouth, will roll off your tongue. We've all known people like that. We've known men and women who get to a point in their lives where absolutely nothing will make them happy. They're 10th commandment breakers. They're covenant breakers. They're covetous. Nothing will satisfy them. Discontentedness is the robe that they wear every day. And they never wash it. It gets really stinky and flies all over it. Everything is upsetting. Everything is a stimulus to griping and carping and whining and complaining. Do not go there, brothers and sisters. Do not allow yourself to be that covetous person. How does a person get like that? Once again, how do they get there? In gratitude. It's because they have not disciplined themselves in gratitude. Now, last thing I'm going to turn to, uh, Romans 1. Remember, in gratitude, in Romans 1, is at the crest of the hill. Before you get into that sick, twisted list of perversions down in Romans 1, the, all that depravity, where does he begin? He begins here. They're without excuse because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were dark, darkened. The covetousness, uh, the, the covetous is first unthankful. He has not trained his mind in restraint. He wants whatever he doesn't have and will break any barrier to get it. And if he's He's feckless at getting what he wants. If he's ineffective, then he will nurse bitterness and hatefulness in his heart. Now, the godly man, the godly woman, disciplines himself and herself in saying no. Children, one of the best blessings God has ever given you in your life 
is a parent who will say no. No, we're not doing that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't stick that in your nose. No, you can't put that in your ear. No, you can't put the cat in the washing machine. No, one of the biggest blessings in your life is a parent who will say no. And every time your parent says no, that ought to kick off a little, a little sparkler of, of thanksgiving in your heart. And you'll say, oh, thank you, God, for giving me a mom and a dad who will tell me no. <laughs> the godly discipline themselves in hearing and saying no to the lusts of their flesh. And they know, the godly discipline themselves knowing there are things I cannot and will never have. There are things that I will not and can never be. There are things that are not owed to me. There are things that I do not deserve. There are things that are not mine. There are things that God has set boundaries around and he said, no. And I have to be thankful for that. I have to give thanks to a God who tells me no. To paraphrase Paul in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your own hands, eat your own bread, and don't be a serpent in your neighbor's garden. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your law, which we need. Our society needs it. Our families need it. Our church needs it. Our community and neighborhoods need your law. So Father, make us emissaries of your perfect law so that we may obey it and show the world what it looks like when a people are submitted to you from head to toe. We can't do this on our own. We need your spirit. We need your strength. So Father, I pray for an extra measure of your spiritual strength so that we may do this. As we live and work and play and feast, we pray for these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.